Corinne, your London and European debut last year at English National Opera in La Traviata in Peter Konvichny's highly intense staging was the stuff of dreams, truly. It's one of the most sensational debuts I've ever seen in London. And we're not used to seeing them at English National Opera. We're more used to seeing them at the Royal Opera House, the, the debuts that really make headlines. And you got the kind of notices. It was as if you'd written them yourself. I'm still convinced you did write them yourself, actually. <laughs> it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Did it surpass your expectations completely? Absolutely. It was life-changing. I came on recommendation of a conductor, Stephen Lord, um, who was conducted at English National. And he kind of told John McMurray and John Barry, you should keep an eye out for this girl. And they said, well, we still want to hear her. So I came to London and sang on the stage. I think I sang four arias. And you paid your own way. This has yeah. kind of made it even more romantic. <laughs> the fact that you used some prize money from one of your competition wins to, to pay your way over to audition. I did. Oh. I was so lucky to have that money or I wouldn't have been able to come. But I found out while I was still in Europe that I... Uh, got the contract. So I was so excited and I had a Traviata coming up in Hong Kong um, prior to this Traviata. So uh, I was able to really get the role in my voice in Italian, which I think is really important for mm. these kind of epic roles. And so it was partially having done it before, but it was also with the help of my mentors. Um, Stephen Lord coached me on it and he's done it a lot. My teacher, Diana Soviero, is one of the best violettas ever. And it's a role that I've kind of been getting in my voice for years, something I knew was going to be one of my calling cards, mm. and I'm so glad I did. <laughs> well, it, it felt so complete, vocally and dramatically, and it's the kind of performance that makes people think, where has she been all our lives? It was a real arrival performance. interesting is that both the productions you did, the Hong Kong one and ENO, were very specific dramatically. I've seen some clips of the Hong Kong production. That means that you had to have had the role well and truly into your person uh, in order to be able to go where those directors took you, which was different places. Well, I feel comfortable with off-the-beaten-path productions, especially with a good director, not just for the sake of shock value, but someone who's really thought it through it does challenge you to think of the role in a different way, to think of the music differently even, because these composers were not stodgy. They were forward-thinking, and, and I'm not saying a traditional production has to be stodgy, mm. not at all, but there's kind of this school of thought that says, okay, well, here's the way you do Traviata and the gorgeous gowns mm. and the you know, bubbly champagne and everything. And I think anything that challenges me to add layers to this character, I mean, you have to add and peel away as well, that really helped me to do that rather than just getting stuck in a production where I look beautiful and I don't really have to do anything. Yeah. In, I mean, in opera, because there are only a limited number of roles, singers have to repeat them many times and often in very many productions. And gone are the days where singers would arrive with the same performance 
whatever the production was, even the same costume sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you know, these great divas used to take their costumes with. That's hilarious. <laughs> I think modern singers have to have that approach, don't they? Because opera is so much more theatre yeah. than it ever was. And I think it should be without forsaking the vocal integrity and quality. I think it should be music theatre. And there's a way to integrate both. And not to bring up Diana again, but she really is just such a role model for me in that because her vocal technique was flawless, but she never had to sacrifice dramatic intent. If anything, it enhanced her, her vocalism. If there's a mission statement to my artistry, it would be that. I work methodically in the practice room, almost as an athlete would do sprints, to get the voice where it's just kind of second nature. So when I get on stage, I have that freedom. about Diana's tips she gave you for the big act one aria, Sempre Libera, which is virtually the whole character contained in one piece of music. And it is spectacularly difficult. Well, for someone who was just such an epic actress like Diana, people probably think that it's this kind of dramatic catharsis type thing. But in fact, to get there, as I said before, we have to take the emotion away for a second Mm -hmm. and really just work on the kind of boring, methodical aspects of singing. We always start with the recitative, kind of finding the speech-like quality, Mm. but Mm. still being able to be heard in the hall. Mm. Then we start adding layers. And I think we spent a good month on the recit, and then we Mm. moved on. But for me as well, I do believe in building things in order. I really don't like, even in the staging process, taking things out of order, because it takes the spontaneity away a bit. Mm. And that's how Di and I work. We, We always kind of take things bit by bit as if we're looking at it for the first time. Hmm. It's, it's a little like those directors who direct musicals and uh, insist that, first of all, the cast go through the songs spoken yeah. before they sing at all, yeah. so that there's absolute speech sense there. Mm-hmm. what happened after Traviata there was clearly a lot of attention I heard rumors that on the last night there were a whole bunch of casting directors Um, I have gotten about 12 contracts out of that run of shows which (laughs) has completely blown me away I mean I was working regionally in the US which you know some people think is maybe not the way to go to build an international superstar career but I don't think there's one way to build a career And I didn't choose to do a fest. And I think a lot of young singers, that's a good path because they get many roles in in their bodies and are kind of able to perform all the time in a venue that's not too high pressure. But I did that in the States. By the time I I came to ENO, I had done Traviata, Bohème, Carmen, Romeo and Juliet, all of my kind of staple roles in a venue with good directors and conductors, but not 
something where I would be getting 30 reviews. <laughs> in that sense, I kind of knew that I would, through my work ethic, through the quality that I was putting forth, that things would build. But I just had to wait and have faith in that moment. And Traviata was that moment. And um, yeah, things have definitely exploded. <laughs> the pressure on you must have been immense. But as you say, when you are so well prepared, you forget about the occasion and the enormity of the occasion. Because I remember talking to you in the rehearsal room mm -hmm. and saying, you know, had you been into the theatre, had you seen how big the house was, all these things. You seemed remarkably unfazed even then. And I think that's <laughs> astonishing. Well, it's really funny because <laughs> at the after party, John Barry had me stand up on a chair and he said, look at what this little girl just went out there and did, you know. Yes. But little did he know, I was so nervous on first night. I mean, more than I had realized I would be just because the pressure hit me. But I'm the kind of singer that I'm always really nervous before because I'm a perfectionist. Mm. But as soon as I get on stage, it's fine. You know, you yeah. just, you kind of realize this is my home. Yeah. This is what I trained to do. You didn't grow up with classical music or opera at no. home, did you? In fact, your dad was a, an amateur rock musician, wasn't he? Yes, yes. Uh, my dad's a lawyer, but he was in rock bands in college and even his first few years as a lawyer. You could have been a rock chick. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I was on that path when I was younger, but opera just kind of found me. I mean, you obviously sang from quite young. Um, you obviously found a voice. But what kind of singing did you produce then before the teachers kicked in and you realised, well, this could be a, a trained voice? Were you singing utterly differently? Were you singing in a, a chest way? Yeah, I was singing sort mostly pop music yeah. and I, w I didn't really get into musical theatre, although I did sing some of the songs, but I was, mm -hmm. in school I was really involved in choir. Um, choral singing was a passion of mine. I love being a part of a group where you can actually be changing a harmony and, and, and I was the alto, so the alto line was kind of the one that can get lost, but I enjoyed kind of bringing it out. And I actually was hoping that maybe there'd be a career for me in choral singing. But when I took my first voice lesson at, I think I was 17, my teacher said, you definitely have an operatic voice and mm. you should pursue it. And my answer was, I hate opera. <laughs> Just because I knew nothing about it. And I think most people think they hate opera mm. because of a preconceived notion or a stereotype. Interesting you began as an alto, yeah. as a mezzo. I would imagine that might have something to do with the way your voice has developed as a soprano because you have that kind of girth mm -hmm. and and the bottom notes as well which are really important the middle voice yeah exactly maybe it's a bit controversial but i will say for this day and age and this this kind of age of singer i think the thing that is missing um in a lot of singers is the middle voice yeah and including myself at one point i mean i kind of had it naturally and then i lost it for a while because as much as the American system is full of great teachers and um, great opportunities, also there's a sort of push to be a package, mm -hmm. to be a stock kind of singer that fits a mold. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I've been more successful in Europe and why I uh, relate to that, but I feel like there's less of that here. Not that there isn't a whole marketing scheme for singers and, and things like that, but it's just... In trying to make the voice completely homogenized yeah. and perfect and packagey, there's a risk of losing the individuality. And a lot of times the middle voice is not focused on in that type of technique. So uh, I know Diana's completely against that model. And so am I, frankly. Mm. I, 
I started as a lyric mezzo. I was still very young. I switched to soprano at 22. I didn't do any full roles as a mezzo, but I sang the, the light lyrics stuff, but I just knew it wasn't my temperament. Mm. And I also had high notes. It's um, always the high notes that exactly. people think are so sexy because whether it's in the tenor or the soprano, and that's a danger in a sense, as you say, that the voice needs to, to be built from the ground upwards. It's a testing time, Corinne, when the offers start coming in. As you said, you've had 12 major contracts as a result of this one production. Because casting directors and directors, they'll look at your physical attributes, you know, the fact that you are petite and glamorous, you look great on stage, their imaginations will run riot. Mm -hmm. They'll start throwing parts at you that you're not ready to sing. Who are the people that surround you now that help you with your decisions as to what you must sing? Obviously, you're the person that knows best what your voice is capable of and what you're capable of. But who are the people that you trust to make those decisions and not damage you? I'm so glad you asked this because this is really another cornerstone of who I am as an artist and a singer. I think it's really important to have a handful of people that you trust with vocal decisions, business decisions, life decisions as an artist. That being said, I think that circle should be small. In the young artist world, you get so many opinions thrown at you, you forget what your own is. I surround myself with people that I think have integrity as human beings, but also care about me as a person and a singer and know what I'm capable of. And sometimes that means saying, no, you're not ready. And sometimes that means saying, take this risk. You need to take the risk. It's important right now for you. And ultimately, yes, I make the decisions and my team supports me, but I wouldn't be where I am without them. There's no way. Mm. And those people include Stephen Lord, as I said, amazing maestro. Um, next person is uh, Diana Soviero, of course. She's been this light in my life and she believes in me and has really been an amazing support system. So Diana. My main coach, Laurent Philippe, from Normandy, but I met him at the Academy of Vocal Arts where I did my training in Philadelphia, and he's still based there. He took an interest in me when I started at ABA, and I had a lot of vocal issues, partially from tra uh, training as a mezzo, but he saw my fire. He connected with that and knew that if he pushed me, um, that we could kind of overcome a lot of things, and I definitely wouldn't be where I am without him. Hmm. And the fourth person is Jason Ferrante. He's a character tenor, an amazing voice teacher who is based in Miami. And he heard me and said, you're great. Um, have you ever looked at Mimi's arias? And I was 21, 20 or 21. I said, no, I don't sing that stuff. He said, in five years, you will be. And I think it was five years to the day I did my first Mimi. That was a real turning point for me. So without those four people... That's your team. That's my team, and they will always be. That's amazing. <laughs> Before we talk about one or two of the roles you are singing or if you've, you've got your sights on... Do you think the voice is, even as we speak, changing and developing? And is it, is it getting bigger? Because people would look at you and say, Zalome. And, you know, that's probably a long way down the road. But I'm wondering whether that could be the direction you might go. Possibly. I do think future, but I try to think on a five, maybe seven year plan. Most of the houses that have been interested in me have kind of been thinking on a three to four year plan. Right. So I've basically been thinking within five years. Mm -hmm. Zalame would 
be something I'd love to act. I, I don't know if my voice will ever have the Germanic pure squillo that I think you really need for something like that, although I would absolutely love to do it. Yeah. Squillo is that ping. That, that yeah, that, yeah, that kind of... And, and you, ha- you need it in Italian music for sure, but it's a different thrust. A lot of people who sing Germanic repertoire have a silvery quality to the sound, and I have a darker voice that needs a little bit more width rather than directness, which kind of lends itself a bit more to Italian music, French music. Mm-hmm. But I would like to take on some of those roles. In fact, when I was at AVA, I did Strauss's Arabella, and it fit like a glove. That's something I'd like to revisit maybe before Zalame. And I'm, and I'm doing some Mozart as well, which uh, has more of that silvery texture yeah, um, as well. I've had to turn down some things. I got an inquiry for Pique Dame, which I oh, don't. Lord. I am not ready for. No. Someone had a, an interesting idea of casting someone young in the Macropolis case, Janacek, because it's usually cast as an yes. old woman, but she's ageless, yes. which is a cool idea. But I, I said no. You know, I'm really, I'm not ready for that. Some things that have been on the table that I've said yes to. I have uh, Tatiana coming up. I have Desdemona coming up. That's interesting. I mean, the Tatiana, I can absolutely see and hear. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Desdemona, of course, is a part, rather like Zalame, is a part of three voices. Yeah. Desdemona is certainly a part of two voices, mm-hmm. and there is that very heavy third act. Yes. You're aware of it, obviously. Yeah. You think you're ready to go there. I can't say where yet, but I'm doing it in a place that is not a, a very large theatre. Good. And it's with a, a veteran cast that really knows. And th- this is kind of how I approach an offer, if it's something that I'm on the fence about. It's how big is the house, who's directing, who's conducting, and what's the cast like if they have been cast. That's very sensible. My goodness. And it's critical, <laughs> too. The size of the house is... There are a lot of things that one could sing at Glyndebourne, for example. Right. Glyndebourne must be looking at you. I hope so. Nothing on the books yet, but I would absolutely love to sing there. Maybe they're listening. So those, yes, those are critical things. You don't often hear singers talk about them because so many houses are so huge nowadays, anti-human in a way. Although people say the Met acoustic is great, but the house just feels so huge to me. Yeah, I think acoustic is more important actually than size. size, Because at the Coliseum, I don't know if it's just the timbre of my voice or if it's everyone's voices but for me I love singing in the Coliseum I mean having sung Adio del Passato walking upstage and still being audible I found amazing singing into curtains (laughs) I feel comfortable in that house I like big houses as well because while I enjoy conversation and I love being a performer I am sort of an introvert and I feel like I can open up more in a big hall where I'm kind of, everyone's anonymous. Mm. And also my voice just likes big halls and I enjoy it. process of being on the road I mean opera can be a very lonely life I would imagine yeah you have to cultivate obviously friends wherever you go but how do you deal with that it is a lonely life (laughs) I think accepting that and realizing that that is really what we're paid for in this business because most of us the ones who are really dedicated and love it would do it for free Um, we're paid for 
the endless tech rehearsals where we have to be, you know, sweating in costume and not singing and just kind of walking cue to cue. That's the most boring part of the rehearsal process. We're paid for that and we're paid to be away from the people we love because that's the real sacrifice. For me, it's been, of course, throwing myself into my work and loving that, but also having kind of solitary things that give me joy outside of singing. I love cooking. I love reading. Um, I started a blog about healthy living on the road. I, I wanted to. Yeah, it's called <laughs> it's called the Artisan Traveler. It was mainly just because I was interested in these things, and I thought maybe it could become sort of a forum where people could post as well, and mm-hmm. we could share ideas. Because having that serenity amidst kind of that loneliness is really important. It's the only way to have the strength to to keep going when you're on the road so you're, much. You're also a great social networker, and that. I, I guess helps. You're back at ENO at the moment in a rare event, a production of Berlioz's Benvenuto Cellini, directed by the amazing Terry Gilliam. I mean, the damnation of Faust was hair-raising. Looking at your face, I think this sounds like it's going to be pretty hair-raising too, yeah? It's the most unbelievable production I've ever been a part of. I can say that hands down. And I will say the Convicini Traviata was so life-changing for the performers. And I think some of the audience got it, but it's so psychological that I think for some people, they weren't really in on, yeah, the psychology of these characters the way that we were, because we dug into them on the inside. It sucked me in. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Because I I heard kind of... It was extraordinary. Yeah. And because it was done without an interval, and there was a real focus on the people. Yeah, the engagement. Because there was, was very little on the stage. Mm. I thought it was extraordinary, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah I know that. I know people were kind of torn, but with Cellini, it's so hard on sleeve, it's so bombastic, it's so outward, and that's how the piece is. I mean, the piece is nearly impossible to sing. It is French grand opera at its grandest. So many huge arias and ensembles, big chorus scenes, complete pandemonium, and it's perfect for Terry. Perfect. Perfect for him. I mean, it's loosely based on the outrageous memoirs of the Florentine sculptor. Yes. And apparently the only Renaissance artist ever to have written an autobiography. Yes. Which is in itself extraordinary. He's a true Renaissance man, and I think for, for my character, Teresa, who falls in love with him, that's a huge draw for her because it's like, what can this man not do? And in the opera, he makes seemingly impossible things happen. And he's he's a rascal. I mean, he's not the greatest guy in the world, but he's charming and he's brilliant and he's artistic and he makes things happen. And I think that's just so exciting for a girl who's been trapped inside a lot by her controlling father. <laughs> and you're also making your debut um, ere long at the Royal Opera House. Yes. Which 20... you're not allowed to talk about at the moment. No, not, not specifically, but it is definitely on the books, 2016. I don't... Have you met Tony Papano? I haven't. I don't know my cast yet, but I do know who's conducting and directing, and I will say it's going to be amazing. New production. Fantastic. Now, you've made your debut album, which is unusual in a sense, because I would have expected you to have made a, um, an album of operatic arias, perhaps. But yours is a disc of Spanish song. Why is Spanish song? This is interesting. Well, I, I haven't gotten a chance yet to talk about one of my other mentors, Stephen Blyer. He's an incredible pianist, New York-based, and I he runs... Him. Yes, yeah. good. Yeah. And he runs uh, the New York Festival of Song. He heard me on the stage of City Opera when they were still uh, at, the, at Lincoln Center. And he wrote me and said, I'm completely blown away by your voice because you sang Mimi 
and you filled the whole hall, but then you sang Manon and you had high E's and I just didn't understand it. So I want to hear more, but I'm just not sure what you are. <laughs> so I went to his house and sang some song rep for him. And he said, you know, I'm doing a Spanish song program at Caramore and in New York City, and you'd be perfect. But there are a lot of demands in, in the songs. They're vocally challenging. That was right up my alley. I said, mm. absolutely. And that was just such a life-changing experience for where I was because I was in this kind of mode of singing really full, really operatically. And Steve got a hold of me and said, you know, you, you have more colors there. I think this can even help you find these shadings in your opera roles as well. So I think this project would be great for you. So long story short, it was. And afterwards we spoke and he said, I think we need to record these songs. And we had spent a lot of time on them because they feature Castilian Spanish as well as Catalan Basque and Sephardic. And the repertoire is glorious and just not done. Mm. And so the prospect of recording it was great because there's not this huge precedence. Mm. It was grueling in a sense because recording is very different from live performance. You have to be perfect and you have to go back and do it until it is. And then it never really is. So you feel let down because mm. you think this is immortalized. <laughs> it should be perfect. But I'm really happy with it. And Steve is a constant source of inspiration. So Tell yeah. us about the song we're going to hear complete now at the end of this podcast. Uh, that song is Si Con Mis Deseos. And it's really interesting because the text is almost impressionistic in the sense that it's esoteric. It's not really talking about a certain specific feeling or situation, but it is talking about kind of the air of the feeling in Seville, how that makes you feel. And you can hear the flourishes as well. There's a big high B flat and there are characteristically Spanish flourishes and you feel like you're in Seville. It reminds me of Bits of Carmen. I love the disc because there's kind of a mix of things. There are some songs that are stories, some songs that are more of a mood or feeling, a lot of songs about nature, which I love. I don't get to sing about that too often in opera. Yeah, it's glorious. (laughs) 